Google is delaying their move away from cookies yet again. Net neutrality might actually become a law here in the US. We have some exciting open source FOSS news and much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 97, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. I am Henry from TechLore. This week, our promo segment, as usual, is uh, Monero and Patreon. Monero is a private cryptocurrency. You can send it almost anonymously. It's basically digital cash, and you can do that using the QR code on the screen or the address in the description. Patreon is a way to send us fiat currency, and it has the advantage of being like a recurring thing, and you get some perks for it, like no promo segments, show notes, you get to ask us questions that we answer at the end of the episode, stuff like that. So those are still the two ways to support us, and we see the donations. Thank you guys so much. Every little bit helps. We do have a couple quick announcements before we jump in. First off, we are on PeerTube again. I am sorry that took so long. That is 100% my fault, but we're back up. It is apertatube.net. Aperta is Latin for open, so it's like open tube, open source, that kind of thing. We are hoping to have account signups here open to the public soon. You won't be able to upload videos, but you'll at least be able to comment and contribute to the conversation. That'll be coming as soon as I can get that set up. Super exciting. And the other exciting thing, which is a good reason we have this up now, is we're about to talk about our amazing giveaway. The giveaways for SR100, by the way, 100 weeks. If you're on YouTube and you're a YouTube person, because YouTube giveaway rules are very harshly enforced and have led to channels like the Linux experiment dealing with an instant channel ban, we're not risking anything. Nothing about this giveaway is going to be on YouTube. So if you want to hear about the giveaway, go watch this video on Odyssey or now on PeerTube or go listen to the audio version of the podcast. All the information for the giveaway will be everywhere. And I'm about to talk about it everywhere except YouTube. If you're not interested in the giveaway, this is a kind of a large uh, introduction to the giveaway. So feel free to skip it using the timestamps down below. But if you're interested in the giveaway, here we go. Let's talk about this giveaway. So first off, we want to thank everyone for even getting us this far. A hundred weeks is crazy. I did when I first started this, I literally woke up and I was like, man, it'd be cool to do some news like tech quickie. And that's why the first SR is like four or five minutes. And then things kind of got longer and we kind of played around a format slot. And then eventually Nate reached out and then we tried doing a co-host thing and Nate stuck around and now surveillance support is its own whole thing. So that's kind of a quick little history lesson about uh, surveillance support. So it's kind of crazy is we're now at 100 episodes and we're about to hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. It's really cool. So this is kind of our way of giving back and celebrating and doing what we can to kind of just uh, celebrate 100 episodes. So we're doing two kind of giveaways. We don't know if these are gonna be combined in the same giveaway yet, but right now they're two separate ones. There's a software giveaway and a physical giveaway. The software giveaway, the grand prize is a $100 Bitwarden gift card. Bitwarden is a password manager. There's a Crypti lifetime two terabyte plan. Crypti is for digital note taking, to-do lists. It's um, something that I use, I really like it. It's open source. It's all a progressive web app too. So everything runs in your browser on really any device. I'm also gonna give out a Go Incognito access, which is a lifetime access thing. If we make any updates down the road to Go Incognito, which we hope to do, you'll be um, automatically grandfathered into those things. We got a one year IVPN Pro license and we also have a one-year simple login pro license so that's the grand prize and then we also have four regular winners crypti 400 gigabyte lifetime plans go incognito one year of ivpn and one year of simple login that bitwarden gift card is also good for their stores so you could use it for like 10 years of pro or you could use it to pick up some swag 
And then the physical giveaway is where I think the big prizes kind of lie. So the first grand prize is a Pixel 6 from Mamushi. Mamushi sells Pixel 6's pre-flash with Calyx OS. So it will probably come with Calyx OS pre-flash. You can keep that on there. I'm sure you can change it if you wanted to go back to stock Android or move to other particular ROMs. We're also giving out two pieces of Techlore merch and also a copy of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons from Carrie Parker, which is a great book for people getting into the privacy and security world. It's also a great book to gift to someone if you want to kind of educate them in a very easy and uh, comfortable environment. The second grand prize is an EU only grand prize, and that is a Pine Phone, as well as the two Techler merch items and a copy of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And then kind of the third tier, we have eight winners. These are the non grand prizes, is one item of Techler merchandise and then a copy of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. So those are all the prizes. I know I kind of listed off lots of random things. It might make more sense to just click the links down below to see the information because it lists this out a lot easier. I want to thank all the projects we reached out to who are giving this all to you guys. It's amazing. So like big thanks to Bitwarden, to Crypty, to IVPN, Simple Login, um, as well as Mamushi and also Carrie Parker and the Pine64. So like all of you guys are awesome. Thanks so much for supporting our audience and this podcast and this giveaway. And I hope all of our audience members enjoy it. Entrances will be open until August 19th at midnight Pacific time. And we will be announcing winners on the next surveillance report that weekend. So make sure you get all your entrances done ASAP. It will be randomly selected. We will be using CryptPad for this. CryptPad is open source and end-to-end encrypted, so your information will just be sent to us and only we can see it. And also, we have lots of rules that we'll be listing out there, so make sure you read and follow the rules before you submit. And finally, the last thing, I know we already did a promo segment, but this is all being done for free. We're doing this, we're actually shipping things ourselves, even internationally for a lot of you. And so please, we really appreciate if you do enter, at least consider giving back a little bit if you want to help us cover things like shipping costs just to make this worth our time and energy. If you even want to send a dollar to us through Monero, or if you want to join a Patreon tier for a month, like anything's appreciated. But obviously, we're going to do this anyway, just a way for you to help us out with uh, putting this on. And now on to the actual news. Let's start with Google, who is now delaying their move away from cookies in Chrome to 2024. If you haven't been following this, Google announced their privacy sandbox, which is their attempt to get rid of third-party cookies and go more towards more of a centralized platform where they control. They've been continually pushing this, and they're now aiming for the second half of 2024. Allegedly, this is after people are asking for more time to test things. A lot of people in the privacy community are very skeptical of Google and think that this is due to backlash. From like the more pessimistic privacy angle, um, some people are saying this is because they want to still use their current corporate spying technology before the privacy sandbox because they think the privacy sandbox is better. Some people think the privacy sandbox is the same, if not worse. And so they think that Google delaying this is due to backlash. I think all of this is just up for speculation. There is one take though that I did want to outline that's more technical that hasn't been talked about. And that is that this can actually break Google login and authentication for a lot of websites. And this might be a good reason why they're delaying this as well. Not that the other two reasons can't be valid, but this is just a possible third reason. So this is especially for people who use Google for login. Um, You can use a pop-up to communicate with a third-party domain, or you can use a redirect. For the pop-ups, those rely on third-party cookies because most other things are blocked off from websites. And also for the redirect to work, essentially you can use a redirect and use an authentication token using like a URL parameter, but if someone's stripping URL parameters or anything prevents that from happening, like an ad blocker, the fallback method for this is still going to be cookies. And so 
sites have to actively bake in a way to use things like Google login and any other authentication through Google um, that don't rely on third-party cookies and not all sites are doing that. And this could break lots of websites. And so that is just the third possible technical reason that Google could be delaying things. We don't know, but this is very important to watch because this whole privacy sandbox business is a very debated topic. We're seeing some people say, yes, it's ultimately better for privacy, but at the cost of giving Google more control. And we're also seeing the other angle of it's just simply not better at all. And we're also seeing people say this is great. And so I don't have the answers. I don't know if Nate, Nate might have the answers. So we'll see if Nate has the I answers. I have the answers to uh, everything all the time. I'm kidding. I believe it. <laughs> um, I project a great so, year of false confidence. <laughs> so yeah, we're pretty much just waiting to see what Google does with this and how it can impact everything else. Luckily, there's a lot of kickback and really the only browser at this point that's even considering implementing the privacy sandbox is Google Chrome. Not Chromium, just Google Chrome. So that's the good news of all this. Let's move into data breaches. We're going to start off with online insurer Policy Bazaar, who says customer data was exposed by, quote, unauthorized access. The firm claims to have over 9 million customers. And unfortunately, like a lot of data breaches lately, they are not really giving a lot of details. Like they're not saying what data was exposed, how many people were impacted, or even how many times the vulnerability in question was exploited. They did say that the vulnerability has been fixed and they are ordering an audit to make sure their systems are secure and this doesn't keep happening. But that's all we know at this time. And if we learn any more, we'll keep you updated. A breach exposes users of Microleaves proxy service. Microleaves is a proxy service that uses Windows machines as proxies. Allegedly, they are a volunteer opt-in service, but they apparently run an affiliate program that often sees affiliates bundling it as a hidden software with other services. Their target market is enterprises doing repetitive tasks that often get blocked, like data scraping or mass account creation. So they recently fixed the vulnerability that exposed their entire user database. So. That was not good. And the rest of the article is basically a history of Microleaves, which is currently rebranding to shifter.io. Our next story comes from the Justice Department, who is investigating a data breach of the federal court system. Pretty big deal, in my opinion. The breach in question occurred in early 2020, quote unquote, that's all they said. According to the House Judiciary Committee Chair Gerald Nadler, three hostile foreign actors, that was his quote, attempted to breach the U.S. court's document filing systems in early 2020. This was unrelated to the SolarWinds attack that occurred around the same time. That's kind of it. There's still a lot of questions being asked. Uh, you know, understandably, a lot of politicians want answers. Sensitive documents have been switched to paper only for the time being to prevent compromise. So now if you're turning in a sensitive document for a case, you have to go down in person and submit it. This is an update to a previous story. Cybersecurity vendor Entrust tells customers data was stolen during a June cyber attack. When we last covered this story, we didn't have much information, and now we finally do. That's why you should stay subscribed to the Surveillance Report podcast. Previously, they said they weren't even sure if the data was stolen. They now say that some files were taken from our internal systems. That's actually about all we know right now. They haven't said what data or how much. No cybercrime group has posted the data for sale, so it's unclear of the nature of the attack and what the purpose was. But I know what the real takeaway is, and that's you should stay subscribed to this podcast for when we do find out. Our next story is also an update. So yeah, like Henry said, that's that's not just a thing I say, you know, we'll keep you updated if we learn more. We do, or at least we try to if we learn more. So 911 proxy service implodes after disclosing breach. Krebs has the best headlines, I love him. So again, this is another update to one we shared recently. This is a service that was similar to Microleaves. Um, I actually did a double take, but I'm pretty sure they're different services. It uh, proxies your traffic through other residential Windows machines so that you have a residential IP instead of a data center IP. 
and also runs on a shady affiliate program where people probably don't realize they're downloading this program. After Krebs on Security discussed a data breach from them, which was just 10 days ago at the time of this publication, they are now shutting down. Apparently, whoever hacked them overwrote critical parts of the system, and I'm guessing they didn't keep backups because they were like, yeah, we can't recover from this, we're shutting down. This sounds like an actual conclusion more than an update. So we covered the Tim Horton data breach uh, several weeks ago. They're now offering free coffee and donuts to settle, oh, and a donut to settle data privacy invasion claims. Big, big important asterisk on that donut. To rewind a little bit, Tim Horton was collecting user data like location, even if the app was closed. Tim Horton is a Canadian coffee donut shop kind of like Starbucks in Canada, as far as I know. They are now settling. They have to delete the data they collected as well as order any third parties who collected it to do the same. In addition, they are offering customers one free donut and one free coffee. This is a quote from the article. By Canadian pricing, affected Tim Hortons customers can expect a class action settlement to pay out approximately $2.88, $2, two, two Canadian dollars and 88 cents. Is that, I think it's still dollars and cents, because I know it's dollars. It's just Canadian dollars, so I'm assuming it's cents, too. Yeah, pay out approximately Canadian... $2.88 Canadian. And <laughs> I'm keeping this I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how, how you Canadians say your currency when you have to say the cents, too. I, I'm trying to be inclusive of how you would say it there, so... Forgive me. It's in free food and beverages, which could very well be more than class members could expect to get in cash. There's some other stories in here because this was one of those news roundup articles, but that's the one that we wanted to focus on. I don't. Is that like legal? <laughs> Can you like settle settlements with like goods and services that aren't cash based? I, I'm guessing so because they're doing it. I've just never heard of it before. Me either. And, uh, you know, it's actually um, one of the people in my matrix room was the one who tipped me off to this story. And he pointed out like... There's no mention of a fine or anything. Like, this is just their settlement. This is, you know, they're getting getting away with it, basically. Um, Pretty much. Well, and they also pointed out, like, you know, at least you're getting something. I'm still waiting for ex uh, Equifax money, as I've said multiple times. So, I mean, the least Equifax could do is give me a freaking donut. You know what the Equifax settlement should have been? Like, a 10-point boost to everyone's credit score. <laughs> <laughs> like... That actually is meaningful. I know, and can, right? Like, make a yeah, for, for some people. people, like for some people, that would be like the difference between not getting approved and getting approved for something. Yeah, exactly. On that note, we're going to move into companies, and we got one more from Google. After public outcry, Google will reinstate Play Store app permission list. Title pretty much says it all. Permissions are going to be added back into the Play Store, and they will be placed alongside the data safety sheet, which is the developer reported thing that we talked about last week. So they're going to get both. Good job, Google. Thank you for listening to the public outcry. All right. As Microsoft blocks, uh, we have, the last one you did was an update. <laughs> the, the Tim Hortons was an update. The this, 911 proxy service. This one's a little bit an of an update. update. Yeah, these are all updates. I'm trying to count how many this, updates. This is the update edition. One, two, three, four, five <laughs> updates in a row. Okay. This so one's like 50-50. Yeah, but it still kind of is. Um, yeah. So pretty much the history here is Microsoft has been going back and forth on whether or not to block macros in Microsoft Office, which is a very common attack vector. And Microsoft finally has decided, yes, we're going to block macros. But now hackers are finding new attack vectors. They've begun using ISO, RAR, and LNK, which is a Windows shortcut file, um, instead to start trying to do their attacks. 
There's two lessons here. One, threats evolve. It's always a cat and mouse game with this kind of stuff. Normally when one exploit is closed, another one can open up. And second, that doesn't mean that things aren't pointless. Macros are now one less attack vectors that attackers can use. Disabling them doesn't eliminate the threat, but it did fix one. And I wouldn't be surprised if these other things are a little bit harder to exploit. Twitter has warned of, quote, record highs in account data requests. So Twitter has issued their latest transparency report. They have reported, this is a huge number, 47,572 requests for data regarding 198,932 accounts in the second half of 2021, so July through December. Requests for data from media outlets specifically were up 103%. That was 349 accounts. The top requests regarding media and news, when I say media outlets, by the way, I mean like news outlets. So the top requests regarding news outlets came from India, Turkey, and Russia. Overall, the US made the most requests, 39%, and Russia was number two at 18%. According to this report, Twitter does actually attempt to push back on data requests or at least try to get people to like narrow the scope of the request whenever possible. But, you know, it's not always possible and that's not to let them off the hook, but just to say, you know, for the record, they don't just roll over and hand over the data like some people, <clears throat> um, they do actually try to push back on it when they get a chance. Which I think does speak, you know, like if you're a company and you're under jurisdiction, you have to obey rules. You're delusional if you don't think that. Like that's why the stuff like the Tutanota, the stuff that happened in Germany, the Tutanota, the stuff that happened with Proton, like you have to comply with this stuff or else you get shut down. I'm just trying to outline here how like this, how this could apply to the end users and how they should interpret this. This isn't a Twitter is inherently evil because of this. And I'm saying this as someone who doesn't really like Twitter. It just means that like these companies have to obey regulation and you should apply this to really any company, even if they're a privacy-based organization. You just always have to keep this in the back of your mind. And that's why collecting as little data as possible is always the best bet, which is why services that just have the threat model of not collecting data in the first place is the good part. The next one, Samsung has released something called a repair mode that lets technicians look at your phone, but not your data. This is a new feature for Galaxy models when you send them off to repair. The context here is normally when you send phones off to repair, it pretty much gives people complete access to your device. Normally they'll ask for a password or they'll ask you to remove a password, especially if they're trying to make sure that everything works on the phone. But now it locks your data, it shows technicians only the default apps with blank data so they can test it for functionality without invading your privacy. This is really cool, and it'd be cool to see more of that roll out to other devices too. Our next story comes from Gizmodo. It says, these companies know when you're pregnant and they're not keeping it secret. The byline or the like subtitle says, Gizmodo identified 32 brokers selling data on 2.9 billion profiles of US residents pegged as actively pregnant or shopping for maternity products. A Gizmodo investigation into some of the nation's biggest data brokers found more than two dozen promoting access to data sets containing digital information on millions of pregnant and potentially pregnant people across the country. At least one of those companies also offered a large catalog of people who were using the same sorts of birth control that's being targeted by more restrictive states right now. So this is going back into Roe v. Wade. That has long-reaching consequences that we will be feeling for decades to come, one way or the other. Gizmodo was able to find likely data sources for 19 of the data brokers by scouring announcements about past partnerships and integrations. For the remaining handful of these players, the mind-boggling complexity of the data-sharing ecosystem meant it was completely impossible to suss out where exactly they were deriving their data. So basically, we don't know where everybody's getting their data from. We can take some guesses. They mentioned, for example, there's a company called Alike Audience who was selling the data of 61 million iOS users, but they didn't specify where they got that data, whether it was from like an app or, uh, you know, 
user reported stuff or some kind of like plugin, like a Google Analytics type thing. The article speculated that in that specific situation, they might be getting the data from MasterCard by reporting purchases in the maternity care category, which again is kind of broad. Like they wouldn't really say what exactly falls into that category. So this is all a very opaque, hidden industry, and they're not at all trying to protect your data. They're just selling it to whoever wants it. Yeah, just very unsettling and worth knowing. There's a story, it's from like 2014, I think, where this lady decided she got pregnant and she decided that just as a pure experiment, she wanted to keep data brokers from finding out about it. And she said that like, if I remember correctly, I could be exaggerating this, that like the lengths she went to to hide this information from them put her on like a a criminal watch list or something like that, or at very least made her feel like a criminal because she had to go out of her way, like pay for everything in cash, use the Tor browser. Like it's a really interesting read. If I can find it, I'll throw it in the show notes. These companies are super, super invasive and it's very unfortunate. And you get another update. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, another update. Bunnings and Kmart have halted their use of facial recognition technology in their stores as Privacy Watchdog investigates. This is an update, as Nate just said. A consumer group called Choice alleges that the companies were not giving sufficient notice of the use of this technology. The managing director of Bunnings said that Choice mischaracterized the use of their tech, saying it was only used to enforce store bans, while Kmart said they use it to prevent refund fraud. The good guys have also paused their use of facial recognition technology, while 17 other stores say they don't use it and have no plans to. So this is good news, but also just keep in mind the stores you go to are only getting more and more privacy invasive. You're starting to see a lot more facial recognition technology, Bluetooth beacons, uh, lots of other invasive things in stores. So just generally try to be careful and just keep that on your radar. I make sure when I get in the car to go anywhere, like one of the first things I do is I sit there for a minute and I'm like, okay, turn off the Wi-Fi, turn off the Bluetooth, turn on the VPN. I feel bad because like it is now socially acceptable to wear a mask and I know I could. And like, it's probably not bulletproof against facial recognition, but it probably helps some. And I just don't because I'm lazy. I wear my mask everywhere. I should just for that reason alone, (laughs) but I don't. Yes. For that reason alone, the privacy aspect, even though like, yes, we're starting to see now facial recognition is is typically bypassing masks more or less, but like, it's still better. But also the big thing for me, this is what no one talks about. And this is why I'm so confused. Who here listening to this podcast enjoys getting sick? I want you to raise your hand because I don't think anyone's going to raise their hand. I hate being sick. I don't want to be sick. I have to run. I'm an athlete. I have things to do in my life. I don't need to be sick. Dude, I don't even run. The rates, like being the, sick. the rates, <laughs> the rates of the cold and the flu during the pandemic dropped to almost nothing because people were socially distancing and masked up. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's how we should be permanently. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying I don't want to be sick. And if I just can take five seconds out of my day to put my mask on and go inside a store and even lower my risk of getting sick by 10%, I think it's worth it. Plus the privacy aspect of things. But that's my take. Like, I don't want to get freaking sick, man. COVID aside, I, w- I don't want the cold. I don't want the flu. I don't want anything. I want to be, like, healthy all the time. And with that, we'll move into the research section. And we're going to start off with some good news. Ransom payments fall as fewer victims choose to pay the, says hackers, cyber criminals. So this comes from a, quote, ransomware remediation firm called Coveware. Coveware. I don't know how that's pronounced. Quick statistics lesson here. Uh, The average is all of it added together divided by the number of things you just added together. So the average payment is up 8%. It's 228,125. But the median, which is the actual like center number, has dropped 
51% to $36,360. So yeah, that seems like good news to me. And the article says these numbers have actually been declining since Q4 of last year, which is not a huge data set to work with, but it is good news. It, it shows that this seems to be on the downfall and ransomware victims are hopefully keeping better backups and deciding not to pay the criminals. So good for them. Adversarial attacks can cause DNS amplification, fool network defense systems, a machine learning study finds. This one's a little more technical. Recent years have seen a growing interest in the use of machine learning and deep learning in cybersecurity, especially in network intrusion detection and prevention. However, according to a study by researchers at the Citadel, a military college in South Carolina, USA, deep learning models trained for network intrusion detection can be bypassed through adversarial attacks, specifically crafted data that fools neural network to change their behavior. This study focused on specifically DNS amplification, which works similar to a denial of service attack in reverse, where you essentially spoof an IP address, send a ton of DNS queries, and the response floods the victim with traffic. The exact details of how the attack was successful go kind of over our heads, but in short, the researchers were able to outsmart machine learning models that are designed to protect networks, once again showing that you should layer up defenses and always be on the lookout for uh, crafty attacks like these. Our next story is also pretty technical. It comes from GitHub, where it says GitHub Actions workflow flaws provide write access to projects, including Logstash. So I'm going to quote the article. Security researchers have identified multiple workflows in popular continuous integration and development, CI slash CD, service GitHub actions that are vulnerable to command execution. A research team from dating platform Tinder crafted an automated script that unearthed flaws that enabled the exfiltration of secrets that provide right access to various open source GitHub repositories, including Elastic's Logstash. So basically they found that I believe it was pull, pull requests can be abused. And if you inject malicious code in there, and I'm assuming it has to be accepted, but if you inject malicious code in there, it can actually expose secrets like credentials that give you right access to the project. In a worst case scenario, you can exploit a vulnerable workflow to retrieve the GitHub token value, which has again, right access to the repository. And this can be used to push a malicious build against users and perform supply chain related exploits. If more sensitive access tokens within the workflow, such as AWS credentials, API keys, or service credentials are exposed, this could lead to a compromise of a company's infrastructure. Tinder Security Labs has open sourced the tool for research. GitHub workflow auditor checks workflows for unsafe user inputs, malicious com commits, and secrets. GitHub Security Lab has meanwhile previously recommended that pull underscore request underscore target only be used when developers need the privileged context of the target repo in their workflow. Basically, they've open sourced this tool. So if you're a developer, you can use this to check, you know, we just mentioned layer your defenses. This can be another tool in your arsenal to check for any malicious uh, commits or, or suggestions. And as always, principle of least privilege, if somebody doesn't need that level of access, they shouldn't have it. And our last research article of the week, one in five data breaches was due to a software supply chain compromise, an IBM report warns. This is just a stat, supply chain compromises, which is essentially when um, a good example is, let's say Apple releases a new iPhone along the supply chain process where the phone is actually being developed and put together and produced before it's ever shipped to you, that's where the attack would happen. That's what a supply chain attack generally is. But this is, happens on the software side of things. So that's the software equivalent of like a physical supply chain attack. Uh, supply chain compromises take 26 days longer to identify and contain than average. And a total cost of a supply chain attack on average is $4.46 million which is 2.5% higher than average, and the global average cost of a data breach is $4.35 million, which is 13% higher than the last two years. 
Lots of big numbers that I hope scare people more than it currently is. And now we'll move into the politics section where we're gonna start off with some potentially good news. Congressional Democrats prepare to introduce a net neutrality bill. So Democrats on Capitol Hill on Thursday introduced legislation that could restore net neutrality and the authority of the Federal Communications Commission to regulate broadband. The legislation would reestablish the FCC's authority over broadband infrastructure by reclassifying internet services as a telecommunications service. This would mean stricter oversight for broadband companies like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon. And unfortunately, this is expected to meet a lot of resistance from Republicans. For those who are not from the U.S., the Republicans tend to be very, and this is not me being political, this is a fact, Republicans tend to be very, like, hands-off when it comes to business regulation. They kind of let, prefer to let the free market do its thing. So any kind of oversight or regulation like this is generally not going to be well-received by Republicans. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say this. Personally, net neutrality seems to me like the absolute most Republican free market thing you could possibly do. Like, all net neutrality says is that the provider is not allowed to discriminate against the content. So, for example, I think it's AT&T has a deal with HBO Max, and therefore, right now, without net neutrality, AT&T could charge you more if you watch Netflix or, like, throttle Netflix. But net neutrality would say, no, you have to treat all traffic the same, and you have to let Netflix and HBO Max bow through at the same speeds without charging extra. So it puts everyone on a level playing field, and I don't understand why Republicans are so opposed to this. Like, to me, this seems like the most free market thing I've ever heard of. Whatever, um, get off my opinions. Net neutrality might possibly become a thing. It's probably gonna meet a lot of resistance and it's gonna be an uphill battle, but personally, I think it would be a really huge win if that became a thing. New Orleans has okayed some police use of facial recognition. This is a reversal of a decision and includes facial recognition software and cell phone surveillance towers, which we don't really know what that means since most cell phone towers are kind of just surveillance towers, so they might be referring to stingrays, but it's kind of unclear what's being referred to here. This comes as murders are at a record high not seen since Hurricane Katrina. The mayor called it a tremendous stride toward a greater public safety, while the ACLU points out that facial recognition software is both racist and sexist and cites a lack of evidence that it actually reduces violence. We're citing ACLU. If you have an issue with that, go to their blog post. Don't go to us. The ordinance specifies 39 crimes that can be cited to use the tech, including murder, rape, stalking, and battery of a police officer. Um, and also predictive software still remains illegal. So that is important to me. I'm glad they're not using predictive software because I feel like that is extremely dangerous personally, but I'm still very hesitant to say that facial recognition is a good move forward because I also have not seen enough evidence to show that it actually reduces violence. You know, it has been shown to reduce violence. <laughs> Helping people get out of poverty. Uh, I'll start listing things off, but I'm sure half the comments will call us communists, so. I, I'll write on that, actually. I know I've recommended this before. There's a book. It's called The Rise of Big Data Policing by Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, I think his name is. It surprisingly takes a very pro-police officer stance, but he's very critical of big data. And he points out, like, there is a way to use it that actually is effective. And he specifically cites New Orleans, interestingly. Many years ago, they had a program where they used a lot of this predictive technology, but they didn't only use it for policing. They used it for all across the city government. So like if a, a street lamp was out, that would get forwarded to the right department and they would go fix the street lamp and like all this kind of data. And they actually found taking a very holistic approach like that actually reduced crime. Whereas just the straight up, like only using it for policing had like no effect. So 
Fantastic book. I totally recommend that if you're interested in this topic. On that note, more police officer stuff. New Jersey police used baby DNA to investigate crimes, a lawsuit claims. So New Jersey police may have used blood samples taken from babies to investigate crimes, according to the public defenders in the state. This came to light after police subpoenaed a blood sample from a child and then used the DNA analysis to link the child's father to a 25-year-old crime. The article says the blood samples are not directly shared with law enforcement agencies, but obviously police can subpoena them. And the lawsuit is alleging that the parents were not made aware of the fact that these blood samples can be used for those kinds of purposes. So for those who don't know, this is actually a really common thing. At a lot of hospitals nowadays, when a baby is born, they will take a blood sample and screen for diseases because first of all, when they're babies, they obviously can't talk and say like, hey, this thing hurts. So they um, screen for these diseases and most of them can actually be cured if they're caught early enough or at very least managed. So that's what they do this for. They take this blood, they screen for the diseases. The problem is most of these hospitals don't destroy the DNA. They send it off to someone else for other uses. Typically, police is not one of those uses, to be fair. It's usually used for um, public health reasons, but clearly police can subpoena this data. So most of the time you also, I think it's dependent on the state, but you as a parent, you can actually request like, hey, I want this sample to be destroyed after you're done with the medical screening. So keep that in mind if you wanna have a family or if you've had kids, go ahead and call the hospital and be like, hey, what'd you guys do with that blood sample? We'll keep you updated if we learn anything about what comes of this lawsuit. Up next, a secret court has asked to quash a decade of MI5 surveillance warrants following systemic breaches. MI5 is a UK intelligence agency and Liberty and Privacy International are asking the courts to throw out their surveillance warrants under the argument that the warrants were issued in secret. And they argue that had the warrants been issued publicly, they never would have been granted. And this kind of reminds me of FISA here in the US, which is also a similar court where it's pretty much a private court that essentially approves almost any warrant request done for surveillance warrants. So very similar vibes across the UK and US here regarding this. Our last story comes from Malaysia. The headline says, Bill banning tobacco smoking products would compel suspects to give enforcers access to personal devices. I'm gonna quote the article. Article 34 in the Control of Tobacco Product and Smoking Bill of 2022 would compel a user to provide their device's password for the purposes of investigation should an officer have reasonable, uh, <laughs> reasonable reasons to believe that the person they suspect has purchased or been buying tobacco products and or smoking devices. Articles 34.1 and 34.2 stipulates that an officer must be given access to any recorded information or computerized data in the course of their investigation if they believe the device is involved in an offense. And furthermore, Article 34.3 states that the authorized officer may make copies or take extracts of the recorded information or computerized data if he deems it necessary. And Article 34.4 states that the access to be given to the officers include necessary password, encryption code, decryption code, software or hardware, or any other means required to enable officers to scrutinize the information or data. So pretty much everything you could possibly think of. Um, you have to hand over devices, you have to give up passwords, you have to give up decryption keys, they're allowed to make copies. Um, very unfortunate. And the bill, for context, the bill proposes to ban the sale of cigarettes and vape products or provision of smoking services to anyone born after 2007. They're just basically trying to prevent the next generation of people from being able to get addicted to cigarettes and nicotine in the first place, I think. Yeah, that's a lot of access to give over to people. So that's really unfortunate. And if you live in Malaysia, you should probably, I, I don't know anything about the culture there. I don't know if this is being talked about in the media or not, but if it's not, you should definitely let people know because that's really scary. 
With that, we will move into free and open source software, and we're going to start with a, a really interesting story. Molvad is now available on Amazon in the US and SE, I think that's Sweden. These are gift cards and codes. You're not buying it directly from Amazon in the software sense. You're just buying a gift card from Amazon and they mail you a gift card. Amazon does not store the code. Do they do not see the code? The code is hidden behind one of those little like scratch off things. So you don't have to worry about Amazon in this equation at all. We'll talk about that in a second. And they point out that you can use this to gift the subscription to someone else if you want to, or you can use it for yourself, whatever flips your flapjack. So, I mean, Mulvad is super cheap. They're like $5 a month. So that might be a, a really good stocking stuffer when the holidays roll around or something. I don't know. Personally, I don't think we're big fans of Amazon, but it's really cool to see more options for people. And Henry has some thoughts on that as well. First off, I know people in the privacy community are going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe they got Then they start getting angry about this. And it's like, it's not about you. <laughs> Like they're trying to bring their own service to more people and a lot of people use Amazon. You can still buy Mulvad subscriptions with Monero and Bitcoin and cash by mail or whatever. Like all the other options are still there, guys. Don't worry. Yeah. So I know some of you are going to be like angry for like no reason. Go outside. But also, as long as Amazon doesn't lock out your account randomly, which they kind of do sometimes. I've had just my accounts randomly shut down. I know our editor, Tori, had something happen to her too. But as long as that doesn't happen, you can actually use Amazon pretty darn privately too, which is cool. You can use an alias email. You can purchase an Amazon gift card locally at your local stores in cash and use that for your payment method. And then you can ship to an Amazon locker. Um, so it's actually a pretty cool place to order things somewhat privately. Um, I still don't necessarily recommend it, but just an FYI for those of you who do want to or currently use Amazon. Now, who doesn't want your money is LibreOffice. Well, they, they do, they do. LibreOffice, I know, was dealing with like some financial stuff, I think, last year. So donate to FOSS projects. That is kind of another side tangent to why I think that's important because you want to make sure things have sustainable business models. But LibreOffice is an open source alternative to Microsoft Office, and they are addressing security issues with macros and passwords. The suite's been updated to address several security vulnerabilities related to the execution of macros and the protection of passwords for web connections. Three fixes in total were fixed, and the article recommends setting your macros to high security for maximum protection, which is in the settings for LibreOffice. Our next FOSS story comes from Tutanota, who has fixed a cross-site scripting vulnerability. I'm going to quote the article. On June 22nd, we were informed about a cross-site scripting vulnerability in all Tutanota clients. We immediately started working on a fix, which was published two days later. Now all affected versions of Tutanota have been disabled, and we would like to inform you about the issue for full transparency. That's really all there is to it. You can read the article if you want the full details. They really dive into the technical stuff. But yeah, point is, um, they did fix it. They responded very quickly, and if you are using Tutanota, make sure you are on the latest uh, versions of everything so that you have the best protection. A really quick one, Crypty, which is like note-taking. I use it for pretty much everything. It's kind of an alternative to Notion. It's a little more simplified than Notion. They have released some updates and you can now upload videos and large files up to 500 megabytes per file, which is a big deal because they are a progressive web app. So they're actually very restricted in what they can do. And this is actually a browser limitation. So they would probably do more if browsers didn't restrict end-to-end -end encryption to something like 500 megabytes per file for upload and downloading. Another cool thing is you can now use Crypti even on e-ink ebook readers, like a pocketbook, which is fun. I might take out my old Kindle Paperwhite from 2013 to see if it works. So that's kind of cool. This is a really quick mention. This isn't really a strict story, but we did want to update you all. Pixel 6a's are being shipped out. 
So that is awesome. I'm sure people are excited to get their hands on them for those of you who pre-ordered them. Just so you are aware, there were some concerns. Some users were having issues unlocking the bootloader in developer settings, which was grayed out. Typically this is grayed out uh, before you connect to the internet on Pixels. You do need to connect to the internet normally in order to get that option, but even users who connected didn't have the option. This was actually a server issue on Google's end, which should now be resolved. So you now should be able to unlock the bootloader. So have fun ROMing. And we're gonna move into Misfits, where we just got a couple of stories. First up, malicious NPM packages steal Discord users' payment card info. Multiple NPM packages are being used in an ongoing malicious campaign to infect Discord users with malware that steals their payment card information. Once these packages have been injected, which I think, the article wasn't very clear, but I think this happens like, upstream. I don't think this is something that you as the end user download, like traditional malware. I think this is like a supply chain attack. Once it's installed, the malware can steal Discord tokens and system info, including IP addresses. It also monitors user actions like logins, changing credentials, 2FA, and new payment methods. And all of that info gets remotely uploaded to the command and control servers. So this is your reminder to use masked payment information whenever possible so that you don't get compromised like that and get your card number stolen because that is a pain and it sucks. Cyberspies are using Google Chrome extension to steal emails undetected. This is a North Korean backed threat group tracked as Kim Suki, and they're using a malicious browser extension to steal emails from Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge, or I'm guessing any other Chromium based browser users reading their webmail. The attackers installed a malicious extension after compromising a target system using a custom VBS script by replacing the preferences and secure preferences files with ones downloaded from the malware's command and control center. The malware directly inspects and exfiltrates data from a victim's webmail account as they browse it. A few takeaways here. One, be very careful with Chrome extensions. I'm confused on this attack. It's worded as if you have to install the malicious extension, but it says they install the extension after compromising a target system using a VBS script. So it's unclear if they're actually installing the malicious extension for users or if users are installing it on their own. I was going to give the general takeaway of always be careful with extensions, but I just wasn't aware if that applied to this story because it sounds like they might actually install the extension for you. Stay up to date. It's the best you can do in this kind of situation. And our final story, the US government is warning Americans of escalating SMS phishing attacks. The title kind of says it all. Just I'm sure we're all getting a lot of robotechs that, you know, try to get you to click a link. Don't click the link. The article is full of the usual advice, but there was one new piece of it, at least for me, it was new that I thought was really cool. You can report text scam attempts to your wireless service by forwarding the unwanted text to 7726 or spam. What I do, if I do receive anything, like I've, re I've received some pretty convincing fake PayPal notifications. I've gotten emails, yeah. Yeah, emails were the ones for me. I never, ever, ever, ever click links within the, the notification. I always just log into the account and see if anything's there. So if you're ever actually curious, even if it looks legit, even if it is legit, because I actually do receive legitimate things from PayPal and whatnot, I never click it, just, just to be safe. Um, so I always just log in manually and just see what the notifications are. Finally, we'll move into the Q&A section. We're gonna start off from definitely Jeff, who said, hey guys, this is a localized question, but I if I live in a country that requires real identification to legally set up a SIM card and phone number, what are some of the options to anonymize my phone number short of committing fraud? Or are there alternatives to having a phone number whilst retaining the ability to connect to people via the internet? Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is voice over IP. Depending on where you live, there's different options. There's 
MySudo, there's Google Voice. I think Viber and Skype will actually give you numbers that work as voice over IP. JMP.chat is really expensive and a little bit difficult to set up, but I've heard good things about it. I know the number one thing everybody craps on those for is they're not encrypted, they're not private, they're not, you know, yeah, you're right. MySudo's not gonna end-to-end -end encrypt my, my voice call with my bank, but at least when it gets caught in a data breach, my SIM number is not out there getting, you know, SIM swapped and used for malicious purposes, so. People really miss the point of tools. We see this with privacy.com, we see this with MySudo. Pretty much most aliasing solutions, I feel like, are the ones that people miss the point. The point isn't that it's a trustless anonymity-related solution that guarantees you absolute privacy. The point is you're now only needing to trust one party instead of giving out your real information to countless parties. That's generally a takeaway for all of these aliasing solutions. I know it's kind of a side tangent to the question, but I did want to address it because we unironically get people who say, my pseudo shouldn't be used, it's closed source. And it's like, you're really missing the point of what this tool is providing here. Also, the other thing for Jeff too is um, try to also find things that don't rely on phone numbers. You know, I love Signal, but that phone number requirement does work against it. And so services like Matrix or anything that just doesn't require a phone number might actually be better for you if you're just trying to communicate with other people. And our next question comes from Arcadia who says, do you have any tips for job seekers regarding privacy? What are the best sites to use and the ones to avoid? So before we get to privacy, in my opinion, I think you should go to the sites where your jobs are. Like there's a lot of job sites that were popular back in the day and now they're just full of like bots and pyramid scams and they're just not worth it. It's also very industry specific. Like, yeah, I'll go ahead and share this one. So I mentioned I work in audio video. In live production, there's a website called Offstage Jobs and it is exclusively for like theater, touring, um, that kind of live production environment. And you know, if you're a programmer, you, you have no business being there. You're wasting your time. But if you want to work in production and you want to, you know, you're a carpenter or a, a lighting tech or anything like that, that's a really good lead. It's not perfect, but it's it's a really good source. So yeah, first of all, go where, where the jobs are, where there's actually people looking. And then I would focus on once you found where the jobs are, okay, how can I make this more private? Not to steal his thunder, but I know TechLore has a video on this and I also have a blog on this. So there's a couple of resources. I'll try to remember to put those in the show notes. I think the privacy and security tips are found between the video and the blog where we kind of break down like how to set up um, your devices and your environment for the job hunt and how to actually conduct the, the job hunt in as private and secure way as possible. Ultimately, it's still a personal task that's going to involve you and some personal information, but it covers like how to, how to handle phone numbers, emails, and other private information in a way that, you know, won't necessarily cause red flags for anyone. And that's it for this week. We had tons of updates. This was definitely the update edition. Google has delayed their move away from cookies yet again. Net neutrality, hopefully, will become a law. We're hoping on that one. Some big exciting FOSS news from Mulvad and, uh, you know, Crypti. So really cool stuff. And a lot of other news as always. We want to remind you that the best way to support us is through Patreon and Monero. Uh, the only ways to support us at the moment, but... Monero is a privacy coin, and you can use the QR code on the screen right now to send us some. It's completely anonymous. We don't know who you are, but we see every donation, and it's very much appreciated. Patreon uses fiat currency, but it's recurring, and you get little bonuses like access to the show notes and the ability to ask questions like the ones we just answered. We want to remind you guys also that we are doing a giveaway, so we're not going to talk about that on YouTube, but... If you missed that, be sure to check out uh, Odyssey or PeerTube or the audio version and get all the details on that. It's right at the beginning of the show. We want to thank you guys for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask of you, as always, share the podcast around. 
Make sure you are subscribed and give us a rating if you're listening on a platform where that is an option. We want privacy to reach as many people as possible, and you can help us do that by sharing things around. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you guys next week.